when I was a kid, our summer vacations were always road trips. We never flew anywhere. We, we, we couldn't afford that. And, and honestly, my parents were terrified of planes. And anytime we would go on a trip, we would all pile into our 1990 uh, Dodge Caravan, the one with the wood panel on it, and we would head to one of three or four destinations. And we found that we always ended up going back to the same few places. And then as I got older and had my own family, I have kids now, we have our own road trips. And we find that we go to the same three places uh, or four places every couple of years. And it's Panama City Beach, Myrtle Beach, Gulf Shores, and then every Thanksgiving, we drive to Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is where my wife is from. And I hate that road trip because it's a three and a half hour trip from here to Fort Wayne, Indiana that feels like it's about seven because Indiana is boring. <laughs> there is nothing to see in Indiana. Uh, there's not very many good exits. There's not anything outside of Indianapolis. The traffic seems to crawl between Indianapolis and Fort Wayne. They're always doing construction. And it's in that stretch of the drive that I find myself getting a little complacent about the trip. I find myself starting to get a little dazed with the drive because it is a long boring stretch of highway and it is hard to stay engaged on a long boring stretch of highway i did a quick google search just to find out what people thought was the most boring state to drive through and the consensus seemed to be kansas is the worst i've never been to kansas so i don't know but followed by oklahoma and texas indiana didn't even make the top 10 so if that tells you anything about how boring those states must be. But they all said the same thing. There's just nothing to see. It's flat land for as far as you can imagine. And those are what we call flyover states, if you fly. If you drive, they are sleep-through states, <laughs> unless you're driving. And then those are the states that you have to fight going to sleep, the states where you have to really battle becoming a complacent driver, because a complacent driver is a dangerous driver, right? We all know that. But driving isn't the only place in our lives where we have to battle dangerous complacency. We have to face complacency in a multitude of ways in our life. We face relational complacency, where we're not putting the effort into our relationships that we need to, whether that's a spouse or a friend or family. We face career complacency or financial complacency where we're not putting very much thought into what we're doing. And everybody in this room has faced, is facing, or will face a time of spiritual complacency. And, and complacency is tricky because it's not some big event. It's not something that really jumps out and grabs your attention that tells you that something might be wrong. In C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, an older demon named Screwtape is writing letters to his younger nephew, also a demon named Wormwood, and he's trying to give some instruction and direction on how to best distract Christians from following Jesus. And in one of his letters, he says this, the road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. 
screw tape is describing complacency. It's gentle. It's soft. It's easy. There are no twists and turns. There's no surprises. I, I love the Merriam-Webster dictionary of complacency. It says this. It's marked by self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by an unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. You know, it almost sounds like Merriam and Webster had somebody in mind when they wrote that definition. And it sounds like we all know who that person might be because sometimes it's us. Now, if you're a visual learner, I'm going to have a meme up on the screen that everybody in here has probably seen if you've ever been online. So hopefully it's coming, maybe, possibly. There it is. Okay, so if you've never seen this meme, let me set it up for you. There's a dog, and he's in his kitchen, and the kitchen is in, on fire and ablaze around him, and he sits down at the, coffee, the cup of coffee at his kitchen table, and he just says, this is fine. I'm okay with what's happening. Like, this is, this is not that big of a deal. This is, and as he, his flesh melts away, that's pretty graphic. I didn't mean for that last part to be in there, but that's okay. Um, Sometimes this looks like me. And my guess is that sometimes this looks like you. That things are amiss around you or things are on fire around you and it's fine. It's, it'll be okay. When it's not. Because complacency is not a good place to be. But where does complacency come from? Because understanding where it comes from is a big part of the battle. And the answer is a little surprising because the complacency comes from past success. When you've been successful in previous endeavors, you're more likely to be less concerned about your success moving forward. And a perfect example of this is the Kodak company. Everybody knows the Kodak company, right? It's the, the, if you're under a certain age, you know who the company is. Uh, but the Kodak company was the first company to mass produce and sell cameras and film. And they were the first people to sell it to the individual. And they started all the way back in 1888. And for the next 100 years, they grew and grew and grew. And they were the number one name in photography around the world. In fact, in the 90s, they had a 90% market share in the whole world. So that mean, means that every photo or picture that was taken or camera that was being used, 90% of those were from the Kodak company. But then in the late 1990s, as digital cameras became more affordable and common, film, Kodak's biggest moneymaker, became useless. But Kodak, they had been successful for so long that they said, you know, this is probably just a trend. We're going to stay the course. We're not going to innovate. We're not going to try and compete. We are going to keep doing what we do. And in 2012, Kodak Company had to file for bankruptcy. How do you go from a 90% market share to bankruptcy in 20 years? Complacency. They were not self-aware. They didn't realize the danger that they were in or what their deficiencies might have been. And there, there's just nothing worse than someone who has no self-awareness, is there? And, and at, at its easiest, at, at its best, being 
self-unaware is annoying, and at its worst, it's dangerous, right? Your coworker that doesn't wear deodorant, they're annoyingly unaware. But the person who's texting while they're driving, well, they're dangerous. And, and a great place to see just how dangerous complacency can be is the book of Revelation. The first few chapters of the book of Revelation are letters to churches in a part of the world we call Asia Minor. It's modern-day Turkey now, but one of these churches is the church at a city called Sardis. And, and I want to read to you just this brief passage. This is the words of Jesus to this church leader here in chapter 3, verse 1 of Revelation, and it says this, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. A couple of things, because people get really hung up on this. The word for angel just is the same exact word for messenger, uh, so very likely the pastor of that church. And then the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars, this is political language. Uh, if you want to know more about that, uh, we will offer a revelation class again in the future. We just offered one this past month, and it was fantastic. Thanks for coming. Uh, but then it continues. It says this, I know all the things that you do, this is Jesus speaking, and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you were dead. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. So a little bit of background information on the city of Sardis. Sardis was an impressive city. It was the capital city of the Lydian Empire, which I don't expect anybody in here to know who the Lydians are. I had to look it up. But they were an impressive empire, and they were so impressive and well-defended. And you're going to see a picture of Sardis here in just a second. The, the city was built into the side of a mountain, and you couldn't breach its walls because of how high they were. And the Greeks developed a phrase that was, to capture the Acropolis at Sardis is to do the impossible. But Sardis was captured several times, in fact. The first time was in the 6th century BC by Cyrus the Persian. He sent guys over the walls in the middle of the night. And when they got in there, they found that the people were unbothered by the fact that there was an army outside their walls because they had so much past success defending that they were sleeping. So Persians just opened the gates and walked right in. 300 years later, Alexander the Great didn't even have to send men over the walls. He walked right in the front gate because they had it wide open for him. They didn't fight. He said, you know, it's amazing. They all look strong, like they're ready to do battle, but they're weak and complacent. And then just a few years after that, Antiochus III, he was a Seleucid king, he sends guys over the walls the same exact way Cyrus the Persian does, and completely obliterates the city. So when Jesus is speaking to the church at Sardis, and he says, wake up, you look like you're alive, but I know you're dead, he's mocking their history. He says, this is who you are, and you cannot continue to function that way, because Sardis is a city marked by a sleepy complacency. 
It has no drive, no ambition to continue living out the gospel message that Jesus has called them to have. And he's asking them to remember their past so they don't repeat that history. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 32 says this, For simpletons turn away from me to death. Fools are destroyed by their own complacency. Being destroyed by one's own complacency is a theme we see in all kinds of movies and TV shows and books that we read, and, and, and we see it in, in some of our favorites. You know, the, the Jedi Council couldn't be bothered with the Sith threat, right? The wizarding world couldn't accept or believe that Voldemort was going to come back. Don Corleone could not imagine that another family would ever rise up against him. But what we see in each of those stories and a million others just like it is that complacency is a killer. Has your own complacency ever come back to bite you? You fell asleep on something that you shouldn't have fallen asleep on. You dropped the ball in an area where you really should have been pushing forward. I mean, I know it's happened to me. I've dropped the ball in relationships, with work, and sometimes, and I, I'm sure that there's a lot of us in here that can identify with this, sometimes I feel like I live in a state of complacency in my faith. I had this youth leader when I was a kid that he, he liked to ask me this question, which was, how are you and Jesus? And I hated that question. For one, it's just a weird question, like Jesus and I are dating. Um, <laughs> but... The real reason I hated that question is because I didn't want to answer it honestly. It's not that we were bad, but we weren't really great either. We were fine. And we all know that fine doesn't mean fine. It's like when somebody asks, well, how are you and your wife? We're, we're fine. We, we just argued about the price of avocados for two hours, but we're fine. <laughs> but I don't want my faith to be fine. I don't want my relationship with, with God to be fine. I want to be excited about my faith. I want to be enthusiastic about my relationship with God. I don't want to have the same feeling about my relationship with Jesus that I do when I'm driving through Indiana. So how, how do we overcome complacency? How do we battle it? And, and there's lots of books and podcasts and people way smarter than me who have lots of ways that you can do that. But this morning, I just want to give you the three ways that I, I use. And so the, these may work for you. They may not. Uh, I invite you to try them if you'd like. If not, that's not going to hurt my feelings. But there, there are three strategies that I use to overcome complacency. And the first strategy that I use is I take ownership. And I don't just mean take ownership of the complacency. That's part of it, but it's not even the bigger part of it. I mean take ownership of whatever the thing is that you're feeling complacent about. If it's your relationships, take ownership of those relationships. If it's your career, your finances, take ownership of those. And if it's your faith, take ownership of it. Take ownership of that relationship with Jesus. Because when we take ownership of things, we care way more about it. My oldest daughter just started swim team. And at her swim meets, I couldn't care less about 
the other kids' races. Do you know why? Because they're not mine. They don't belong to me. I'm not running along the side of the pool with those kids cheering them on because they aren't my kids. But when my little girl jumps in the pool, there's nothing more important in the world to me because she belongs to me. So what do you need to take ownership of? What, what, what can you take ownership of? If you're here or you're watching at home, what can you take ownership of in your life? Can you take ownership in a ministry of leading a, a small group in your home, of leading our kids or our students? Because when you take ownership, you care so much more. The healthiest and the most vibrant churches are the ones where people take ownership of the ministries they're involved in. And if you feel like your faith is in a complacent place, nothing can change that like taking ownership in the spiritual growth of other people. We have a volunteer in our student ministry named Trista, and Trista epitomizes taking ownership in ministry. She's a volunteer, but you wouldn't know it because she pours into these kids' lives like no other. She goes out and takes the girls out to do fun events because those are her girls. And just because she wants to, not because she feels like she has to, but because she wants to see them grow. That's ownership. We have one of our vocalists, Natalie, and you see Natalie on stage quite a bit, but what you don't know is that Natalie does a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff to make those of you who get to watch from home able to hear and see us. She comes in on her days off or after work just to learn how to run these systems because she cares, because she's taking ownership. We have a group of ladies that we lovingly refer to as the kitchen ladies. Uh, my wife calls them Journey's Angels. And if you enjoyed a cup of coffee here at Journey this morning or any other time, that's because they've taken ownership. They want you to feel welcome in their home. And, and I could go on and on and on because we have a, a thousand volunteers just like that, people who have taken ownership. But if you're not involved, if there's an area that you could take ownership it could transform this place. It could transform this community. So I, I, I ask you, I invite you, find somewhere to take ownership and dive in because quite honestly, we need you. We need you to. The second strategy I found helpful in battling complacency is finding ways of reminding myself of why we do what we do. Remembering the whole purpose behind this church thing, which is to share Jesus' love with the world. Victor Hugo, the author of, and I know I'm going to say this, I'm going uh, to say it like a real American, the author of Les Miserables. <laughs> I tried to practice it in my best French, and it just, Les Miserables, and it's, it's not good. So, but Victor Hugo, he wrote this, there is one thing stronger than all the armies in the world, and that is an idea whose time has come. The idea of unconditional love and grace from the God of all creation is a pretty compelling idea. 
And the natural outpouring of that love and grace is an, is an unbelievable reminder of why we do what we do. I love taking people on their first trip to developing nations. Places like Guatemala or the Dominican Republic, where the gospel is spreading like wildfire. Places like Malawi, where Nathan and Jesse Wingfield are, are going, which, by the way, they're going to be here next week to share some updates. So we want you to be here so you can hear about that and celebrate. But places like that, where most people fail to see God at work at all, and yet it's at work like nothing you could ever imagine. And I love taking people to those places because it completely changes perspective and it reminds them of why we do what we do here. Places where our poor still seem rich. Where the love and the hands and the feet of Jesus are being enacted by people who have nothing because how great of an idea the love and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ is. We have a partner village in Guatemala called El Reparo. And there's a church and there's a feeding center there and they provide kids with school supplies and basic medical checkups. And Jeremy and I are actually going down there in July to check in and see how they're doing and to visit with them. And partnering with one of these kids is one of the greatest opportunities in the world. And we're going to have some more kids this fall that need a partner, that need somebody to come alongside of them, a little bit financially, but a lot of it spiritually, to pour into their lives. And I can't imagine a better reminder of why we do what we do than seeing the life of somebody changed because of Jesus in a distant part of the world from where we are. And so this fall, if that's something you'd be interested in, we, we want to connect with you on that. But this also dovetails perfectly into the third strategy to combat complacency, and that is to be in relationship with other Christian people. Now, I want to be 100% clear here. You should absolutely still be and pursue relationships with people who are not Christians. If you don't have any non-Christian friends or people in your life, then you're doing it wrong. We need to be in relationship with non-Christian people, but being in relationship with Christian people is so important in battling complacency because it is really, really hard to be complacent when you have a group of people cheering you on, when you have a group of people who are supporting you and checking in on you, people who are depending on you, it's really hard to be complacent then. And this is honestly why we push our small group ministry so hard. Because small groups are an excellent place to find yourself in relationship with other Christian people. And talk to somebody who's in a small group and ask them, hey, does this help you in your Christian walk? And I guarantee you they will tell you yes because they are in relationship with other people who are pushing them and depending on them. Popular proverb, chapter 
27, verse 17 says this, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Who's sharpening you? Who are you sharpening? A lot of us, we allow ourselves to be sharpened by people we really shouldn't be sharpened by. By sources that aren't looking out for our best interests. People that don't want to see us grow. So, I guess if you're feeling complacent today, if, if you feel like your relationship with God is fine or your faith feels like you're driving through Indiana, maybe today is the day when you need to take some ownership. Maybe you need to be reminded of why we do what we do. And maybe you need to find a way to get into a relationship with some people that can sharpen you and that you, in return, can sharpen. Let's pray.